0: Oh, Lordy, I'm proud to be here this morning at the Lakeside Conference. My name's June, and I am a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon, and I'm proud to be one. And uh, I want to thank Joe for inviting me down here. And man, what a a place this is. I know what she's talking about. She talks about there's just something special. I get to go to a few places, and uh, I believe this is going to be right on top of my list. And... And I want to tell you all that um, I got down there in my room, and it just reeked of Kay. I just knew she'd been in there, and she had that bed just right, and some <laughs> towels were just laying there in that little sack she had on my bed in case I left anything behind, and sure enough, I did. And, and uh, my little old uh, Marilyn came and got me, and uh, I never had had this happen before. We drove out of that airport in Dallas, and she handed me a road map, and she said, help me out of here, and Lord, I didn't... <laughs>
1: well we got here and <laughs> we had
0: we had a good time in uh getting down here and then i got down here and, and got my soul just fed last night when that marie got up here and talked and and then again this morning with richard and and you know when i was a little girl i was right my grandma and them all went to church down at a hard shell baptist church primitive baptist church where there was foot washing and shouting but I'm gonna tell y'all right now. That's the first time I ever heard a bunch of people crack up laughing during a prayer meeting. And I, <laughs> and I thought, it nice that we serve a God that uh, is comfortable with us, and we can be comfortable with Him if we do. And I'm mighty happy to see old because he had just introduced himself to me. And I thought, when she said that, good grief, you know something terrible's happened here. And. <laughs>
1: oh man and then I got down here and here's
0: Arbutus and and she's one of my my teachers and and uh and Pat and and so many people I know and and I just look so forward to hearing Tom and Peggy uh finish out this conference and I just feel really inadequate you know when you have to get up here and follow what we've already heard but um uh, I just try to tell you my story a little bit about what happened and uh, what I was like and what happened what I'm like today and there is drastic change I can tell you all that and, I want to start out by saying that I suffer from a disease called alcoholism, and I don't drink. And uh, the disease of alcoholism came in my home and, um, and and completely wrecked it. And I speak with permission of my children. I stand behind this podium as a direct result of three kids that drank, and and um, and that's that's how I got here. And I don't say anything about anybody that that isn't okay with them. And, but uh, I, I want to say one thing before I go any further about uh, Joe and Kay. I had, uh, over the past few years, uh, we were kind of indirectly woven together through our children. And I watched those people. And I watched them at times when they should have took that kid of mine and choked him till his eyes bugged out of his head.
1: <laughs>
0: but they walked the walk. And they walked it with love and dignity. And I will never, ever, ever forget that. And I want to tell you that there that kind of people, and I thank you for it. Well, I grew up in a little farm community down there where I live today at Bixby. Now, Bixby, everybody wants to know where Bixby is. Bixby's just right down the road from Tulsa. I go to meeting in Tulsa. I am a committed member of my group in Tulsa, and that means I sponsor. I am sponsored, and um, I do whatever I am asked. and that's just how the the deal goes. And and I grew up down in that little town where I live today. I live down on the home place where my daddy and mama lived, and and that's I'm back down there have been there for two years, and I grew up in a little community that was a farm community and um uh, my daddy was a very successful farmer my daddy was a very prominent man in that community. My family name meant something in that community, and we walked with a great deal of pride and and dignity and honor in that community and um, my daddy uh, was able to provide for us everything we needed and pretty near everything we wanted and and um I grew up in a home where there was no abuse, no alcohol, no cigarette smoking, no cussing, no... It wasn't nothing but church going. We went to church all the time, and they kind of doors open. Mom had us in the car. I got one sister, and we were down at the church house, and... And so by the time I was 17 years old, I was pretty sick and tired of that kind of life. My family was pretty strict, and so I got married. <laughs> <laughs> and I moved down the road about 10 miles, like to kill my mom and daddy, and I, I moved down the road about 10 miles in with a family of people that were well-known in that community too. and. Uh, and uh, not for the same reason mine was, I can tell you all right now. They they had a whiskey still out in the backyard, and uh, they fought like cats and dogs. And they drank beer, and they smoked cigarettes. And I remember the mama had true confession magazines everywhere in the house.
1: <laughs> mama didn't allow nothing
0: like that in our house, and there wasn't a Bible anywhere. Nobody ever mentioned the preacher or church. You know, it was just crazy. And uh, they had a lawyer, kept them on retainer, and one of them killed. <laughs> One of them killed their, their, their grandpa on Christmas day and wound up in penitentiary down in Macalester, Oklahoma. Lord, I just thought I'd died and went to heaven when I got out there. <laughs> That's the grandest place I'd ever been in my life. And it, and it, and it lasted about uh, lasted about two or three months and then it all fell apart. And the man I married, the young man I married, I was 17, he was 18. And um, i have been married nine months, and 11 days. And I had my first baby and 17 months later, I had my second one and 17 months later, I had my third one. and. And time i've been in that marriage eight years i had took everything that my parents had taught me every value i had ever been taught and ground them right under my feet i had joined that honky tonk crowd i had run from the law just like some of them did i had did all the things that i was taught that i had said i would never ever ever do and i had done them all i had just took my little kids and just put them wherever i could put them just up and down the road would you keep my kids tonight anybody that keep my kids so i could go to the honky tonk and lay out and that, with that drunken crowd and do all that kind of stuff. And then some, from time to time, roots of my raising had rear in me, and I'd go back to church, and I'd try one more time to, to do it right, you know. And that didn't work either. And, and I moved home all the time, and, and um, my husband he just beat the far out of me every time he turned around. And, and so I'd move home, and I'd stay a little while, and I'd go back, and, and it was just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the saddest part about that is I didn't have to live like that because my people were financially able and more than willing. The Lord, I could take off this coat I'm burning up.
1: <laughs> and uh, they were willing to take
0: me and those little old kids home and, and, um, and, and so one day my daddy came and said to me, June, if you want to come home, he said, I've got a house that's empty right across the field from the, the big house where I live today. And he said, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll come after you in the morning. And I was ready, eight years, and I was ready. And my daddy sent the field hands in the truck after me and my little old kids and we took what little bit I had left, which was very little and moved down there in that little community of Leonard. It's, it's about 200 people. Now I was 25 years old and I had three old snotty nosed kids and my daddy was watching me like a hawk because he did not cotton to my kind of behavior and he did, not, he did not cotton to the way I had lived and he didn't intend to have none of it. And so my daddy was watching me like a hawk. Now there I lived right down there across the road from him and 200 people in that little community and I knew my, my deal was up and over. I knew that there was not a chance in the world I was going to ever get a man, because everybody in Leonard was old or took, and there wasn't a way I was going to get.
1: <laughs> my daddy didn't believe
0: in women working. He believed in a, a man taking care of the women, and he was from the old school, and besides all that, I, what I'd have done, I didn't have any high school education. I had no skills. I had no education. So my daddy come to me and said, I'm going to give you a job, and your job is stay home and take care of your kids, and I'm going to put money in the bank for you. And that's how I started. And um, so there was this cowboy moved in the... Uh, <laughs> 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 he, he moved in this section over from where we lived and uh, Lord, I tell you right now, he was cute thing and he still is today. And uh, he, he filled them little Wranglers out just exactly right. And, <laughs> and he wore that boots and, and boots and that hat. And and he, and, uh, and so um, what I'd do in order to get to see him, I'd put the milk can in the trunk of, the, of Mama's old car and I'd haul water from Carl's well. and. And everybody and Leonard was hauling water from our well, but I told my daddy that it made better coffee and tea and Carl's water, it is. So I hauled water back and forth and we'd wave and talk a little bit. And then Pat and Mike, that was my little ones and my little boys, and, and they were riding horses all the time. You know, we're country folks, and everybody rides horsey in the country, and, and they rode horses over to where Carl was. He was training horses for a living, and um, so that's kind of how the acquaintance struck up. And then one day, uh, good Lord stepped in and did something for me that I couldn't do for myself. And uh, he, Mike went out there and set our yard on fire. And when you, down there at Leonard,
1: <laughs> down at Leonard, if you to
0: get your yard on fire, well, what you had to do was, and still today, you got to go call up the neighbors. Neighbors call the next neighbors, so on and on it goes. And you get here, they all come with a pickup and a tow sack and a, and a bucket of water, and they beat the fire out. And I don't know if y'all know anything about that. Not that's how we do it. You do, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> and so long haul that little old cowboy came to help beat that far out and I was out there just helping beat the far out you know and, and uh, so then about to tie, a little bit of time went by and I'd known him about three months and um, we never had a date or nothing like that and, and he called me up one night about 11 o'clock and I never will forget it and, and he said I need to come down there and talk to you and I said well lord you better hide your car because daddy will run you off and catch you down here at 11 o'clock at night so he, he hid his car around behind the house and, um, and he come in he'd been in a wedding and uh, he was all shined up and and i just crawled up out of the bed and and uh, put on my jeans and an old t-shirt and i had my hair rolled up in them brushy rollers and put a thing down over it you know, and uh, and so i sat down on the couch to see what he wanted and uh, and he said you know what Jim, i've come down here to ask you if you'll marry me and i said yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> and i want to tell you all i said about that quick
0: too i wasn't stuttering i said sure i will <laughs> He said i love you and i love them kids and i love them real boys and um he was really fond of my little boy mike and uh, mike was five and uh, so i said well you're gonna to have to go up there and ask daddy and uh, so he did he went up the next morning and told my daddy that he was gonna he come up there and tell him he's gonna marry me and them kids and and he said, and my dad told me he's a Stark Raven maniac, he said, it takes a lot of money to keep that group going. And, <laughs> and Carl said, I know it does, but I'm going to marry her. Marrier. So we got married. We got married in August 1960, and we never had a date and, and didn't hardly even know him. And uh, we started out one more time, I was safe and comfortable, and one more time there was no abuse and no alcohol in my home, and one more time I, uh, we, we took our children and went back to church. And, and we begin to try to teach them the things that had been instilled into both of us. And we we begin to teach them that if it don't belong to you, don't take it, and to honor the people in authority over you. That means the school teacher and the police and the and the preacher and whoever is and your elders. You say yes sir and yes ma'am. And and we begin to teach those kids some things. And and when my when Carl and I had been married two years, why well, he adopted those little kids of mine. And and when we started out in 1960, he had two little girls and I had those three kids. And, we had two five and two six and one seven, and one of his little girls come and lived with us and made her home with us, and the other one stayed with her mother. And we bought a little farm right down the road from where I live today, and, and it was about a quarter mile from where my daddy lived, and we started out like that, full of hopes and dreams, and, and safe and comfortable one more time, and each of us so in love. You know, we just my kids just adored him, and, and, and he adored us, and, um, and so there was... Uh, there was a thing, there was a Bixby, a paper up at Bixby called the Bixby Bulletin, still up there, and um, so I was really proud of myself, you know, I really, uh, I was really proud of myself, that pride and arrogance I had walked with all my life, you know, it fired back up in me, and and so I would go down to that paper on a day, on a weekly basis, and I'd write up this story about my kids because they won stuff. If they went to a horse show, they won, and if they went to a pig show, they won, and if they showed the a cow to the, the fair, they won, and when Pat was 16, he soloed in his airplane, and and every time something happened, I'd go down there and put this article in the paper, and I'd tell the truth, but I, you know, stretch it out there a little bit, make it a little bit more interesting. And um, and that came back to haunt me a little bit later on because my motive was that just ten miles down the road, there's the natural family, and my kids, and they're reading this, and I was wanting to gig them every chance I got because what I always said was like Pat Christensen, son of Carl and June Christensen. And I always that was my that was the main thing I wanted in there because I wanted them to read it and I wanted to hurt them because they'd been tacky to me and I was getting back at them and and so uh, it came back to haunt me like I said a few years later. But uh, when in uh, about 1970, Regina was uh, about a little over 16 years old. And she went to a party uptown and um, and they called us about uh, and told us we're gonna have to come up there and get her that that she was dog drunk up there on the streets of Ixby. And Lord have mercy, I, Carl answered the phone, and he just went into a fit. He was high-tempered, and, Lord, he just had a fit, and I just knew he was going to kill her before he got her home. And he went and got in that pickup and went up there and got her and brought her home, and, and he just slung her down in an old rocking chair, just flopped back and forth, and her head flopped back and forth, and Carl called her a tramp. And um, and something happened to me that night, and it, and, it, and it settled right down deep in my gut. And then, and over the years, i come to know what that was, but I didn't know it then. And, and it was this resentment that was beginning to build, and... Because, see, there'd been some things going on at the schoolhouse, and they, uh, Pat, you know, the kids, well, Pat, he'd fly that airplane up there and landed at the schoolhouse and take kids for a ride, and the, the principal called and said, we're going to have to put a stop that, and and I wouldn't tell Carl, and they were getting kicked out of school, and I wouldn't tell Carl, and I was setting up a pattern of, of covering up for my kids and not telling Carl, and and I never did, I never did just come right out and tell them to lie, but I'd say things like, maybe we are not, just, we just start not saying things to your old daddy, and man, they, or didn't want to, so that we just didn't say anything and and uh, and so Carl when he called her that 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 something happened to me and and I started a pattern of something that stayed with me till I come to you and long after I came to you and and that was to find somebody to blame and and it was him it was Carl and um uh, I blamed that man, Lord, I blamed that man for a long, long, long time for many, many things and everything that went wrong, it was his fault. And in my heart, I'd say things like, "If he was their real daddy, he wouldn't act like that. And if he is their real daddy, he'd do it differently." And 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 I just I, I just blamed him. I just blamed him until it was just unmerciful how I blamed that for old Carl. And and so that was the first uh, little incident we had. And um, and then she went on. We she went on at Miami, up close to the Missouri state line up there. That Richard was talking about this morning. Went to college, and um, and she came home in the summer of 1971. And she moved in an apartment in Tulsa, and um, so about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, the phone rang, and it was the law. And they said they had her up there in the Tulsa County Jail, and they had her locked up on a drug possession. And uh, So me and Carl, we got uh, Pat up and asked him if he knew anything about that, and he said no. And uh, so about 5 o'clock, they, they knocked on the door, and they got Pat. And um, they went out there, and, and uh, Carl had bought Pat a brand-new little Camaro and because and, uh, Pat had worked like a field hand all those years, and we would not paid wages, and that was Carl's way of thanking him and paying him back and he bought him this brand new car and I never forget watching them go out there and take the screwdrivers and stuff and begin to unscrew things I didn't even know were there and, and they drug out this stuff and, and uh, so they got both my kids locked up in Tulsa County Jail in the summer of 1971 on a drug charge and, um, and that Bixby Bulletin came out and the Bixby Bulletin said, Pat and Regina Christensen, son and daughter of Carl and Jim Christensen, <laughs> have been arrested and are being held in Tulsa County Jail on a drug possession charge. And, um, and I hadn't been the one that took that news to that paper. And I haven't... <laughs> I don't read that paper today. It's still up there in my grocery store. i just pass it by because I... <laughs> it's happy. <tacky. laughs> 1971, a little farm community like ours a family like ours, we were the first family that that had happened to, and we hung our head in, in shame and disgrace. And um, we went up and got my daddy because all my life my daddy had been able to fix things with money. And and I could be big pregnant or bad beat up, and my daddy'd lay that money in my hand and I'd feel a little bit better for a little while. And, and my daddy'd buy me a new car if he felt sorry for me. And my daddy'd fix my house and he'd fix, fix, fix it. He always fixed me with money, and, and I knew my daddy could fix this thing. And so went and got my mom and daddy. And we went up to the Tulsa County Courthouse to get those kids out of that jam. and um, So now Carl, I, I told Carl how to act uh, all the time. And uh, I told him how to act that morning when we started up there. And I said, now, don't you go up there and act ugly and, and stomp around in them boots and, and embarrass me in front of Mom and Daddy because I didn't want people to know how we were. And see, it, it, was, it wasn't important. What was important to me was what you all thought we were. And 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 we were so well thought of that we stood in Washington D.C. one year and received an award that said we were Farm Family of the Year. And there was a lot of crazy stuff going on down in our house. And and I dressed us up just right, and we we rode in the right kind of car, and we rode the right kind of horses, and we went to the right kind of horse shows, and we went to the right church, and we we did everything just right, and we looked good when we stepped out, and that was the thing that was most important in my mind was what you all thought we were and we were not anything like i was making us look like we were we were not anything each of us by that time was beginning to be so sick in our own way and none of us could see none of us could see so carl went up there and acted ugly just like i knew what he just <laughs> <laughs> he just stomped around in them boots and and carl he he my husband is um He's a great man, and, and he's, a, he's a ranch, redneck ranch cowboy. He don't own a pair of shoes. It's boots, jeans, good hat, and a good coat, and that's his marrying clothes, his bearing clothes, his core clothes, his work clothes, his Sunday clothes. That's all he's got. So he went up there, and there he was. just up there just stomping around in them boots, and them little ringers, and I just killed him. I was in front of Mom and Daddy, and I had then I had to get between folks, you know, started that stuff. So we got him out of that jam, and we sent Pat and, my, uh, Pat and Regina and Sammy, that was Carl's girl, we sent them on back to college. And we moved. We had by that time bought, <laughs> we had by that time bought a ranch down in Moby County, and um, about 20 miles further south from where I live today. And we bought that ranch purely for, with the notion of uh, speculating on it. And uh, and we were we were so disgraced and so ashamed, and that we moved because we couldn't face the folks uh, again. And we moved down there. We got one kid left at home, and that's Mike. And um, and our life um, things really began to fall apart and fall apart fast when we got down there. Mike was offshore showing horses all the time and rodeoing big time and, and he was beginning to do some things he ought not doing and, and drinking and drugging was my kids had dropped out of school and they were just up there and tossed around and Regina was the nurse by then and and um, and I don't know what Pat the was doing and, and they were just they were just around they were just always around doing things and I was always around right behind them doing things and let me tell you how I operated I went right around behind them and I paid the rent and I picked up the bad checks and if a mirror got broke out in the beer joint in the fight I went and bought the mirror and, and I did all these things. I, I bought the clothes. I bought the vehicles. I paid the insurance. I did all these things. And I never did ask my husband or tell him that I was doing any of these things. I just took that money in one hand and the face, I'd hand that money to them. I'd say, I'm going to get you out of this jam, but you better promise me you won't go back in that dirt ever again. you going to promise me that? And they yeah, we're going to promise you that. <laughs> Lord, they did. I mean, really? How dumb can you get that? I... I <laughs> I never failed, you know,
1: just like this. <laughs> I just made them
0: promise me, made them promise me. And, and what I know about that today is my kids did not set out with the intent to do harm. You know, I don't think there's a fella in this room that sets out with the intent to do harm no more than I did. I didn't set out to do the damage that I did. But I'm going to tell you right now, here stands a mama that's capable of killing a past of kids. And I nearly killed all three of mine with that money and that love and thinking I was doing what was right. Thinking I was doing what was right. And so I, you're you're dangerous if you're like me. You know, you're you're dangerous. And um, and so that's how things went on and I was doing all this crazy stuff and, and it was just wild and, and nuttier and all get out and oh Lord, Christmas, it'd be gonna come up on Christmas and Thanksgiving. I'd rather see a you know, pass of snakes coming after me because I gotta do, I gotta get busy. And uh, first thing I gotta do is hunt Pat and Mike up. I gotta round them up and I, and, and I gotta go dig them up out of these places they're in and then I've gotta clean them up because they'll never look good. They got looking really weird, you know.
1: <laughs> really, i tell you right now, they
0: got so weird looking that we, we lived right in the middle of that section we lived on, and, and there was wrong, one road in and one road out, and, and they'd come, they'd come running up, down, come, we, they had a up. I bought it for them, and, and they, and, and here they'd come on these big old motorcycles, vroom, vroom, you know, and come up that driveway and start just to fog, and cattle just to going every which way, and scaring everything to death, and their hair would be long, and the earrings hanging out of their ears, they look weird and Carl stepped right out in the middle of that road and said, you just get the hell off my land and one more time you know whose fault it was it was his and, um, and then I had to hurry up and get in the car and, and go chase them down they wait down the road a little ways for me because <laughs> <laughs> they,
1: they knew I was coming and um and I'd have that
0: money and my finger, and boy, here we'd go through the same old deal again, you know. And uh, But it'd come up those holidays, and, it, and Lord, it was bad time because I had to go find them, had to clean them up, you know, and then I had to be their personal shopper because I knew they weren't ever going to get out and buy a present for their daddy. And now Regina show up looking pretty decent and show up with little presents of some sort or other. And it was so important to me in those days, you know. And, uh, and so I'd go buy usually a book, and I'd disguise my handwriting, and I'd write in there to Daddy with a whole lot of love from Pat and Mike. And... I'd underline it and underline it, and then I'd, I'd watch and watch, you know, and I'd see Pat and Mike coming, and then I'd have to go out and, um, and, and I spit-shine them a little bit, because they still didn't, they have little scars and a little blood maybe flaked around on their face,
1: and I'd clean them up, straighten them
0: up a little bit, and then I'd tell them what I bought their daddy, and I'd say, now, when he opens it up, don't act like an idiot, you know, act like I saw it before, and, and so then I took up my post in that house, and my job was to watch old Carl, and, um, and, and my husband is not a mental midget by any stretch of imagination. And, and my husband would open that book and he would close that book with a look of disgust on his face. And he would not say, thank you, thank you. Look, you what patting my, that's what I want him to do. And, and I would look at that man and in my heart, I'd say one more time, you wrote my Christmas, Carl Christensen. One more time, it's your fault that my Christmas turned out like this. Always Carl's fault, poor old thing. It was just always Carl's fault. And that's how things, if you'd have watched me operate in those days, You'd have said somewhere there's a village being denied as idiot because that's exactly how I
1: went. That's
0: That's exactly how I went. You know, I just went like a crazy person. That Mikey called me up one time. He was up here in Tulsa in an old house and he said, I'm going to shoot myself. And I said, Well, don't shoot yourself till I get there. Wait on me. And <laughs> so I got my pocketbook and my money and I got my car and I went fast as I could up 21st and Lewis, up here in Tulsa. And one more time, I got my money in one hand and my finger like this. And I said, How much money would it take to get you not to shoot yourself, Mike? And he priced it and I paid him and it worked because he <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I put him in an old pickup, and I sent him one more time far away where I wouldn't have to look at him. You know, it was important by that time to get him far away where I wouldn't have to look at him. I I couldn't look. I couldn't listen. You know, Carl would say things to me like, Gina, do you want to sit around with your head in the sand? You go right ahead. But those kids are drugging, and they're drinking, and they ain't coming on this farm. And one more time, I didn't like Carl for that. And the television would come on and talk about drugs and alcohol, and I couldn't look. I could not look at what was going on in my family, the destruction that was going on in my family. And this man that I absolutely adored when I married him, by now we're living in a thing like nothingness. The, the, our, there was no arguing, there was no nothing. We, we ran steers for a living. We ran about 1,500 steers a year. And, and we, we rode horses on a daily basis. We'd get saddling horses and, and, and worked that that ranch. And we did that like partners, and we talked about every aspect of our life except those kids, and don't mention one of them, because he did not see it like I told him how to see it, and he wouldn't understand what I was trying to tell him. And I never knew how to act when I was right. And sometimes I knew I was right, and Carl wouldn't act right, and so I just kept pounding on him and pounding on him and pounding on him, trying to make him understand it my way. And Carl didn't give an inch. He didn't give an inch, and he still didn't today. And so. That was, I decided what I'd do, I'd get Pat out, I'd get him joined up in the Army, and I'd send him off to the Army, and, and they'd straighten his rear end out, and so i sent him off, and, and they, he, well, he didn't do very good in the Army. And they, <laughs> they kept him about two years, and they sent him home with a letter that said he had a, a heroin addiction. i never forget the day that I got that news, and I got out on my knees in my bedroom, and I began to pray to my God, and I prayed like this, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And if you'll do this, I won't never do that no more. Because see, i loud out his house. If somewhere down the line, my God was punishing me for the way I'd lived when I knew I was living wrong those eight years when I was... See, I didn't know there was anything wrong with the way I was living now. I'd cleaned my act up, and, and I wasn't walking and, and doing the things I had done in that eight years. I didn't know there was anything wrong with the way I was living to that that day. And so that's how I prayed. And, and so I got this notion that if uh, I knew it was going to get terrible, because it was just terrible when my kids and Carl was all around you, know, Boy, it was bad. And so I just knew if I could get in the hospital, and uh, so I went up to my doctor who's a good friend of ours, and I said, Tom, if you could just put me in the hospital on this day and just keep me eight days, because that's all that Pat was gonna be home. And I said, if you could just keep me eight days and just run some tests on me, because I think I'm really sick. And Tom was a good friend of ours, and Mike had shot himself in the leg in a drunken stupor about a week prior to that, and Tom had doctored him, and so he knew what was going on in my house. And, and so he'd say things to me like, Jim, do we need to talk about some things that's going on down on that ranch? And I'd say, no, no, everything's fine down there. You know, it's just, I'm sick. Well, Lord, I was sick. I had a great old ulcer. And I had heart, I was taking heart medication. I'd had two back surgeries. I weighed about 100 pounds. I, I, uh, I was buying things like crazy. I was trying to fix up this, fix up that, trying to fix myself. I was hiding in a dark spot in my bedroom and laying in there sleeping for hours and hours on end. I was hiding the telephone at night so it wouldn't ring, so I wouldn't have to hear the news from a drunken kid, and I wouldn't have to hear Carl's reaction from a drunken kid, and I was, yeah, that's sick. That's just real sick. And I'd say, no, 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 nothing wrong with me. You know, I was just, and so that's, uh, so Tom put me in there, and they run a whole bunch of tests on me, because I knew I'd be safe up there. Because I knew Pat, I I knew there wasn't a way in the world that they was gonna come up there and act ugly over the bed of a dying woman. And I, I, (laughs) (laughs) so that's where I piled up up there in the hospital. And Tom ran a little testy, didn't find nothing wrong. But while I was up there, I got really, I got to thinking, my mind, you know. And so I got, I got Pat and Mike a job out in Calipatria, California, and I sent 'em out there uh, one more time, far away from me, where I wouldn't have to look. And uh, but but they, they didn't they didn't keep them out there very long. They said st- it makes a difference where I sent them boys, they sent them back. It wife sent them back, army sent them back, jobs sent them back, they always sent them back to me. And I had to one more time figure out what I was going to do with them. And um, Regina, she's uh, by that time unemployable, and she's uh had gone from nursing to uh, slinging uh drinks behind a bar in, a, in an old joint up there in Tulsa. And she got hurt, she couldn't even do that because she's drinking all the time. And she's just laying up there in an in the apartment with, with some man and uh. So it was really crazy i can tell you that around my house it was just really um it was sad state of affairs and while pat was out there in california he got married and he brought a wife home so i got one more thing to take care of i gotta take care of the wife i gotta do things to keep and, and pretty soon a couple of years went by and i had a little girl and i got one more thing to take care of and and it was just woe is me you know i just have all these things to take care of i gotta take care of all these things i got to buy the clothes for the kid and the wife and the ice box and the television and whatever she needed got to buy for her so she'll stay put and stay there with Pat. And Pat, by that time, was flying spray planes for a living. And, um, and it was crazier and all get out. And Mike had gone up into Ohio. He'd, I'd sent him back up there again, and he'd gone back up there. And, and from time to time, my mom and dad would go up there to see him. And, and it was just terrible how he was living and his drinking and drugging had just progressed to the, the bottom. And, and so... Um, one night we were down there on that ranch and one night the phone rang and it was about 11 o'clock and I picked up that phone and it was Mike. And, and he sounded really good, you know, and, and he said, Mama, I got good news for you. I got good news to tell you. He said, there was a man come up here to see me today and, uh, and he said, I, I've been down on my knees and, and, and the Lord has saved my soul and called me to preach and I'm going to be a preacher. And now Mike had told me when he was 15 years old that he felt a very strong calling to preach. And he said, i tell you what I did, Mama. I told the Lord if he wanted a preacher in our bunch, he would get past. I didn't want to be a preacher. And so he said, Mama, I'm going to go up there at that Bible college. And I said, well, you can't do that. You know, I wasn't my idea, so I didn't know how you could do it. And I said,
1: <laughs> I said, well, you can't do that. Mike, you, you didn't graduate
0: out of high school because see, Mike was standing in, in the Otamogie County Jail the day his class graduated. And he said, Yeah, I will. And, and he went up there, and he told him his story, and he took the test that was necessary, and he went to that Bible college, and he became a preacher. And I sent the money to him to stay on and go to school on up there for two years, and he called me up, and he told me he wanted to go to Belfast in Northern Ireland to study with Dr. Ian Paisley in that country over there, And he wanted to, uh, and I sent him the money to go on and to live on while he was over there for some year and a half. And he came out of there, and he wanted to go down to Greenville in South Carolina and go to Bob Jones University and get his degree in theology, and I sent the money on him, and to him, because by that time he had a wife, and I continued to uh, support him financially. Not one time did I ask my husband if I could do that, I just did it, but more importantly, not one time did it ever sink into my mind, did it ever cross my mind, to get on my knees and say, Lord, is this your will for my life and that voice, because it didn't make me any difference. You know, I have steamrolled over everybody between here and Tulsa, Oklahoma, to fix that kid. And I thought I was fixing it. I was giving him the opportunity. So now, people are beginning to come up to me and they're saying, Oh, June, aren't you proud? And sure, I was proud. I reared back in that pride and arrogance I carried. And one more time, I took full credit for my boy being in the ministry. And one more time, I throwed my chin up. And I was proud of what I had accomplished. Because I allowed us how that somewhere down the line, that kid had heard me with my finger in his face. And he took that to heart. And he was where he was today because of his mother.
1: And... Um, so now
0: i got one kid preaching and two kids drunk, and the drunk kids don't like the preacher, and the preacher don't like the drugs, and Carl don't like any of us. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so things are not a heck of a lot different. And, and I heard Marie talk last night, and I appreciated some the things she talked about because I know that she talked about how, how things fall apart sometimes when you get in recovery and these programs. it not make any difference if you're an Allen Honoré and how things fall apart and how you don't have to give up. And, of course, and, and I, I appreciated that so much, that message that she gave to, to all of us and especially to the newcomers that think sometimes this gets to be a bed of roses when we get in here. But this was long before I got here, but let me tell you something. The things that I was thinking... Uh, I I, I dealt with, after I came in here, I dealt with the financial. We we were on that ranch and we were proud of that ranch. We were proud of that ranch and we were, we had a beautiful place down there and the interest went up, the steel market went down and oil prices went to pot and and everything went crazy and and we got in a bind and we had to move off that ranch and we had to sell that place in order to pay off what we owed and we owed a lot of money and we didn't have very much left when we got out of that jam and we was able to buy five little acres and a little house up on the highway toward Tulsa and I carried a resentment in my heart long after I came to you all and because of the principle of this program I was able to rid myself of that resentment I carried against that man because one more time it was Carl's fault that we were in that shape and one more time I resented Carl for, for us having to move and, and change our lifestyle. We were We were dragging horses up and down the highway from California to Florida. A lot of times up here in Fort Worth, we were having the time of our life, and we didn't get to do that anymore. And I resented that man for that, and you all helped me with that, and I maybe can tell you about it later. I don't know. But anyway, we moved up to the highway, and, and we were building a little place for our horses, and, and we heard, it was a Sunday afternoon, and we heard that spray plane coming, and, and we stepped out of the barn. And my husband looked up, and he said, Lord, in at that, that's that Pat, and he's going to kill himself. He's drunk. And I looked at him, and I said, I don't know how in the world you know that. He's up there, and you're down here. Now, how do you know he's drunk? And he said, oh, June, I've watched him too many times, and he's drunk, and he's going to kill himself. And at 9 o'clock that night, that phone rang, and it was Pat. And Pat said, Mama, I need help. Well, he sure (laughs) called the right fella because I was ready. I was always armed with helpful information on anything you needed. And besides all that, my daughter had married into a family of people in Tulsa, where the daddy had drunk for many, many years. And he joined up with something called Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and went to a treatment center up Tulsa. And I knew about that. And so when Pat asked me for help, well, immediately my mind went to clicking. And I said, I'll take what, Pat. His wife had kicked him out. And, he, and I said, You go on down to your granddaddy's tonight, and I'll get you tomorrow. And i never forget my husband looking at me when I hung that phone up. And he said, June, you know what was that about? And I said, Nothing. It was nothing. Because, see, I didn't want to, I couldn't even talk to Carl about this deal. It was, I don't know if y'all understand it or not, but Lord, surely somebody in here does. I couldn't talk because I knew we wouldn't agree, and I didn't want to go there. I just didn't want to do that day. And so I didn't tell Carl. Next day, I got up went down to his granddaddy's, and I got that kid, and I called his wife, and I said, now you get up, and you get dressed, and you, gl- and you look good, and we're going to go, and we're going to take Pat Lewis up to a treatment center in Tulsa. I'd already called up there, made arrangements, and of course, I got a clean pad up. I don't want him going up there. I mean, he did not look fit to join Alcoholics Anonymous or anything. Laughter
1: and I, I, I knew
0: that. I knew that. I thought that day. So we, I cleaned him up, you know. I took him by the house, put on the best he had. We took him up here on 71st Memorial and parked in front of a barber shop. And I stood front, and she stood the back, so he wouldn't escape. And took him in there and made him cut his hair, so he'd look good. And then I put him in the car, and I and I proceeded to tell them what to tell them people when they got in there. See, I wanted those people to know that we were farm family of the year. And I wanted them to know that there wasn't anything, I don't know what happened here about this kid, but there's something happened here, and y'all are going to help him out. And so just in case they didn't get it right, I went in there with them. And and I started flopping my lip and and talking to those people, and they stood there and listened to me for about five minutes and dismissed me and told me I did not need to come back. And so I went home, and I did not tell Carl that he could go up there. I just went home and... um, and so I want to tell y'all something. My boy fell into a treatment center that at that particular time in Tulsa was notorious for talking Big Book and talking AA. And my boy fell into that bunch of people. And, it, and it's just kind of like what Marie was talking about last night, one of my favorite parts in that Big Book, his pick, struck, gold, Marie. Because he fell in there with a bunch of people that told him that he had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they not only told him that, they told him where he had to go. And he had to go out to the old West Side group, toughest old group in Tulsa. And he got out there and they assigned him a sponsor. And his own sponsor was an old man named Leo that had been around this program for many, many years. And Leo was not one bit impressed that that kid's granddaddy had a lot of money. And he was not one bit impressed with that, that kid could fly an airplane. And he was not one bit impressed that this was the kid of the farm family of the year. <laughs> Leo... <laughs> Leo knew something that that kid didn't know, and he knew how to stay sober, and he said, I want to tell you something, kids, you stay green and grow, and you stay with me, and you'll be sober. You can live a sober and useful life, and on the 29th day of March this past year, I handed that boy a 15-year chip. Thank God for Alcoholics <laughs> Anonymous. Up there to get that little girl of mine and take her to see her brother one day. And she was cuddled up on a huddled up on an old couch and she was laying there in a the fetal position. And Lord, it looked like a storm had hit that tornado that place where she lived and stuff was just laying around everywhere. And she suffered all the time with the virus in those days. And she told me she had the virus and she couldn't go. And I, of course, gave her some money to buy what she needed for the virus. And I walked out of there and I went up to that hospital and I said to her brother, You know, I went by to get Regina to bring her up here to see if she's got that virus again and she couldn't come. And that little boy of mine looked at me and he said, Mama, don't you know? Don't you know what's wrong with her? Well, y'all think she's got something bad wrong with her stomach. No, Mama, he said, she's drinking and she's drugging and she needs to be right up here with me. And I turned on my boy just like that, just like I had his daddy. Because I couldn't stand to listen to it, not even from him. Shortly after that, they fished her out of the swimming pool unconscious, and she landed right up there in that very same treatment center, and she stayed up there for some 30 or 40 days. And after that, they sent her to a halfway house for six weeks, and that little girl is going to pick up her 15-year chip just right soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Not one word that came out of this mother's mouth sobered my kids up. Not one dollar that came out of this mother's hand did anything but dadgum near kill my kids. My kids came to you for the help, and that's where they got it, and that's where they stay, and that's where they'll stay as long as they hold their hands out, they'll be sober. And as long as they reach out to that man that needs help, that wet drunk, as long as they do that, they'll stay sober. And that's where my kids are today, and I am so ever grateful to you. Well, first thing my kids did... They bought me a big book and told me I ought to read it.
1: <laughs> now, they told me up there at that
0: treatment center, my kids had a disease, and that disease was called alcoholism, and I'm going to tell you people right now, I was never tickled in all my life to hear it. Because I allowed to tell, their daddy was, to, in my mind, their real daddy was low-life, sorry, no account, lily-livered, yellow belly, everything you can think of, just didn't want to do any better, sorry. And I didn't want to think that about my kids. I did not want to think that about my kids. And when they told me that, was, that my kids suffered from a disease called alcoholism, I was tickled to death. I was tickled to death to hear it. And they told me to read that book. So I read that book because if they had told me they had leukemia, I read it. I needed to understand something about this disease. So I sat down and began to read that book. Now, <laughs> I didn't read that book right. I, I began to read that book and I saw things in that book and I saw them. And I saw in there where it said, your inability to get honest is your problem. And so that was their problem. And I wrote their name right out there in the margin. <laughs> and I read in there where it said something about the director of the play. And it talked about my inability to, uh, my flight from reality or else we mentally defective. And I said, that's old Carl. That's his problem. And I wrote Carl's name right <laughs> out there. And that's how I read the book. And then the next thing that my kids did, they come up to me one day and they said, Mama, we think you are to go to Al-Anon. And I said, you have got to be the most ungrateful kid I've ever had.
1: (laughs) Now, if you want somebody
0: to go to Al-Anon, why don't y'all just march right out there and tell your daddy to go? Because he's the one that acted like the horse's rear end. It wasn't me. You go get him to go to Al-Anon. I don't think so. I don't think I'll go. And they said, Mama, it's you. (laughs) You need... You need to go down to Oatmoge, which was about 20 miles from where I was living. You need to go down to Moggy. There's a woman down there, and her name's Ramona, and she'll help you if you'll go down there. And I said, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And so the people, my, my kids began to bring sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous into my home around holidays, and things began to get a little bit better in my home, a little bit better. And I began to watch these people that had come out of this thing called Alcoholics Anonymous, and they walked different, and they looked different, they talked different, and they acted different. You see, I've been raised in, in an environment where there was no alcohol, but somehow or other these people were different. They were different. And I wished I drank so I could join you, but I didn't, and I couldn't, and so I just thought, well, it's just wonderful to have them around. And I'm going to tell you all right now, there began to come a healing in my home. There began to come a healing in my home, but I'll tell you right now, people, it did not come like that. And it didn't come when someone walked up and said, I'm sure sorry. But see, I'm sorry didn't cut it no more with us. I'm sorry had been said too many times. You know, when the healing became, began to come between the daddy and those children was when he sat back and watched, and they began to walk different and talk different and act different and do different. And they began to honor commitment. And they begin to make up for things they've done. and They begin to make amends and try to pay back old debts. And they begin to do the things that the principles of this program teaches. See, if nothing changes, nothing changes. And they begin to change. And that's where the healing began to take place in my home. And that's how it started. And it was a slow, slow process. My children had been in this program for some three years. And I picked up the phone one day and called up in Marietta, Ohio, where my boy was preaching. And I asked about Mike because I hadn't heard from him in a couple of weeks. And the preacher told me, Jen, I'm real sorry to have to tell you this, but that boy's drunk again, and he's been drunk for some two weeks. There'd been a disappointment come to Mike, and I don't know what happened, but he crawled right back in that bottle, just exactly like he craw- crawled out, only he was worse. And I thought, Lord, have mercy. I've got to try to keep the secret of a drunk preacher. Now, how in the world am I going to do that? And I didn't know what in the world to do, and this is on a Saturday. And I'd, of course I did not tell anybody. And on a Sunday morning, my daddy came to my house on a Sunday morning and brought coffee or brought donuts for us to have before we went to church. And, and as my daddy walked in, I passed out and I couldn't talk and I couldn't breathe. And they rushed me up to the hospital gasping for breath and looking like I was going to die for sure. And it scared my daddy so bad, he called Pat. By that time, Pat was down in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And he called Regina. She was in Tulsa. And he said, I think your mom was dying. Y'all better come. And they worked with me all day long in that hospital and one more time and they would ask me if there was any way I could help them if there was any way I could tell them I'd just shake my head and no and by the end of the day they had me where I could talk and I could breathe and they took me home and Carl took me back in the bedroom laid me down on the bed and Pat come back there and shut the door and sat down beside me and he took my hand in his and he said mama you want not tell me what's wrong with you and I shook my head no it's Mike isn't it mama yeah how'd you know oh he said mama we could see it coming and I know today what he's talking about. Because you know, you can take people like me, it don't make any difference what program you're in, but if you watch them pretty closely, if you watch pretty closely, you can see that relapse coming before it happens. You can see them walk different, talk different, get with a different group, give up their good ways and, and start doing it. And you know something's fixing to happen. And my children, my sober children had watched this preacher boy and they knew something was wrong with him. They knew there were some things that weren't right with him. And so they were not one bit surprised when that shoe fell and he was drunk. And so Pat went down the hill to my sister, and he got money from my sister to get on an airplane and go the next day to Columbus, Ohio, and get that boy and put him in a treatment center. And he called that battery of preachers that was in that little fundamental Baptist church up there. And he said, Now I want to tell you folks something. I'm coming after Mike." And I believe in the concept of alcoholism. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I I believe in that disease. And and if you all don't believe in it and you're not going to help me, don't you get in my way because I'm coming to get him. And they said to him, we'll be there, and we'll pick you up at the airport, and we'll go with you, and we'll help you. And they did. They went and helped him. And they took that kid, and they put him in that treatment center up there in Columbus, and he only stayed a couple of weeks. And he came out of there, and he was drunk all over again. And his little wife, Kathy, she called me, and she said, Jen, maybe if we could come home. So I sent her a plane ticket for him to come home. And they came in, it was somewhere around, I don't remember, in the first of August or something like that, and it was terrible two weeks for me because I was scared to death. You know, I was absolutely terrified that he was gonna get drunk and, and shameless all right in front of mom and daddy and Carl and everybody. Everybody was gonna know. I was just terrified. And somehow or other, the poor old thing managed to stay sober for that two weeks. And the day arrived that I could take that kid one more time and send him far away from me where I didn't have to look. And I put him on the plane up there in that airport that day, him and his little old wife. And I walked back out in that airport and I leaned up against the wall and I just slithered to the floor. And I sat there with my head on my knees and I sobbed just like I'd put a corpse on that plane that day. Because somehow in my heart, I knew the gig was up. Somehow in my heart, I knew that I didn't have the power in my day, didn't have the money to fix what was wrong with my boy. I don't know how I knew it, but I knew it. I did not surrender that day, but I knew. And that little girl of mine, she came running down the corridor of that airport, and she sat with me some two or three hours that day, and she said, Mama, this is where you're going to be willing and you're going to be ready to go to that little Al-Anon group down there in Oak and you're going to hunt up Ramona, and you're going to learn about surrender, and you're going to learn about release. And she was right. You know, my little sober kids took me by the hand, and they began to teach me the precious lessons that the people of Alcoholics Anonymous had taught to them. And so on Tuesday night, I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting. I'm going to tell you all right now, I went in there for two things and two things only. I wanted to sober up a kid and make a man mind And if I could get that done, I'd have the world on the tail. That's all I went for. I went in there, and, and I was not one bit tickled to be there. Not one bit tickled where this had took me. I did not know that what kind of a person I really was. I did not realize that I went in there full of soul sickness, spiritually dry, black-hearted, self-righteous, arrogant, blaming, doing all these things that I had no notion I was doing. I had no notion I was doing it. And I sat there with that snarl on my face that night, and Ramona wasn't there. And she'd been out speaking somewhere, and I didn't know where she was. And I sat there that night with my chin up and my head reared back thinking I did not belong here. And those people just asked me to do two things. Just be willing to be teachable, they said June, and be open-minded. Just be willing to be teachable and be open-minded. And so I left there that night and I drove home and I said to myself, I'm not going back down there. I'm different than those people. They don't understand about people like me. They don't have a kid that was a preacher that's now drunk. So why I need to go down there and try to get help from them. But I went, I went the next morning and I told Regina I'm not going back down there. And that little girl with her finger in her, my face said to me, Mama, would you just give it six weeks? Just give it six weeks. And that was in August of 1987 and I haven't been gone since. I've been back down there at those little meetings ever since I walked in. But I did not go willingly, I'm here to tell you. Now, my two sober kids took me in October down on Fountainhead down there at the lake to our Oklahoma State Island Con- oh, Conference. And, and um, we got down there, and I, I, re- I was looking at how everybody was dressed. I was looking at, every, you know, wanting to make sure I measured up and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, just one more time, it was important how we looked. And um, so I walked in there, and there was a woman stood up behind a podium like this, and her name was Sue and Sue I laid down some things for me that day that I never shall forget, and I never will. I never forget how she said it. She said, If there's no recovery at home, there's no recovery. And you've got to learn to say you could be right. So, armed with that bit of information, I went home from that conference, all knowing, all knowledgeable. You know, I got it all. I knew it wouldn't take old Carl long, and sure enough, it didn't. And he said something that vexed me right real good, and I looked straight at in Carl's eyes, and I said, You know, Carl. You could be right. And poor old Carl his
1: jauld His
0: jaw fell about right here and I jumped right up out from that kitchen table and I went down to the bathroom and I got on my knees and this is what I said, Lord, help me shut my mouth.
1: Now prior to that my prayer would have been now
0: Lord if you'll shut his mouth long enough I'm going to march right out there and tell him what it is I know you want me telling." tell him because somehow or other I felt like that, that was my job and so that's how I started this journey and I began to go and I got my sponsor and my sponsor was Ramona and I went down and I got to walk with Ramona for three years that's where I first met Tom and, and I met so many people it became so valuable in my life you know Ramona knew she was dying and she knew she wasn't going to be here long she had to work fast with me and she had to put me in contact with people like Arbutus and, and on and on that I would stay co- close to and learn from. And, and, and so the first thing Ramona did, Ramona gave to me what was given to her. And what was given to Ramona was the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 and 12 of AA, coupled with the books, what very few there were when she came here of al And she walked me through my steps on those books. And she told me to get on my knees on a daily basis and, and say that third step prayer. And I began to do the things that she began to tell me to do, and things began to get better. And she told me to pick that book up and go back and read it and see if somewhere in that book, of, that big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I could not see something that I could relate to. And I have become a student of that book, and I'm proud to say that, because I see a lot of things in that book that I can identify with. You know, I had to go back and I had to take old Carl's name off that page, where it said in full flight around here else we're mentally defective. That was me, you know that was me. I had to go back and take off the names of my children when it talked about lying because I had lied and cheated and connived and done all these things all those years, and I had to get honest about that i had to, I had to get on my knees and do that first step prayer i had to I had to read this chapter on acceptance I had to read I had to read every night what to do when you go to bed and every morning, what to do when you get up, and those are the things that she taught me to do. And coupled with the on anon literature and the, the ODAT book and those books, I started my recovery. And I'm going to tell you all right now, Carl Christensen will be forever indebted to, <laughs>
1: <laughs> to this program.
0: Brought a great deal of heat from darn home. Believe me, it did. So i have been in this program about four years. Mike got sober for a little while, and, um, and he moved home from Ohio, and he brought his wife with him. They moved down the road a little ways from us. And he stayed sober uh, about another year, I guess. And then, you know, I, I saw that disease call him. You know, Beverly back there, she talks about that a lot, about the disease calling her boy. And I saw that disease call my boy, and I watched him one more time go out and, and, and pick it up and do it all over again. And, and it was absolutely a heartbreaking time for me because Mike, he's, he's my funnest kid. And, you know, when he's sober, you know, he's fun. And, and, and gosh, he'd, he'd come home, and we'd drink coffee, and we'd... He'd rope me with the rope, and he'd squirt me with the water hose, and we'd do the chores, and we'd die laughing, we'd lay down in the grass and roll around and laugh and talk about how wonderful it was for Mike to be sober, and, and Mike would talk about the big book to me, and everything was good, and then he called, and, and he went, and uh, by that time, he was behind two or three back operations, and he moved up Tulsa, and he was taking a lot of pills, and, and he was crazier and all get out, and it was just nuts, and, and and people were telling me what to do, and I thought I was doing, I thought I graduated uh, Because he he called me up one time and asked me for some money, and I said no, and I thought that was the end of it. I thought that was the the hardest thing, but Lord, it got harder, and it got harder, and it got harder. And in recovery, it got harder, just like we talked about, Marie. And and so I I was coming home from my meeting one Tuesday night, and I drive up in my yard, and and there sits my Pat's car from Arkansas. And I walked in the house, and there sits Carl and Pat, and and they're sitting there, and my husband is broken, and he's crying. and, And I said, what's happened? And he said, Lord, you know, I didn't know what to do. I had to call Pat to come home and help me. I mean, this is the boy that he used to tell him to get off his land. He called him to come home and help him. He said, it's Mike. He's going to die. And I don't know how to, I don't know what to do. And I, one more time, took it back. And I said, oh, wait, don't, don't worry. I'm going up there tomorrow. I've been thinking, and I'm going to go get him, and I'm going to fix him. I know how to fix him. I'm going to bring him home, and I'm going to fix him. And my Pat looked at me, and his finger in my face, like I'd taught him, so well. (laughs) And he said, "Mama, don't you know by now God don't need you meddling around in his business? Don't you know by now God's got people to deal with Mike and you ain't it? You leave that boy alone, don't you go back up there and mess with him. Don't you go mess with Mike, you leave him alone. And I said, he's going to die, and he said, he very well may, he very well may. Everybody that walks through these doors don't get well and everybody that walks through these doors don't live. And he very well may, but you don't have to be the one that's responsible for it. You leave him alone. And on and on in the night we talked. And I started down the hall to my bedroom, and I looked back at my husband sitting there on the floor and a boy right in front of him on the floor, and the tears literally falling and flowing. And I saw for the first time what I had done to that man. For the first time, on my knees, every morning, just like Ramona said, praying for the release from my self-will. I saw what I had done. I was, uh, I was into myself so bad at four years in this program that I did not know there was another soul on that place that was hurting. And I looked back and I saw what I had done to that man. And I started making amends to that man that night, and I make them every day since for what I had done to him, what I, how I had stripped him of every right he had to think and every right he had to talk and every fiber of his dignity I had took from him. And I had lied and lied and lied to this man as if he was a bumbling idiot and couldn't figure out what I was doing. It was terrible. And I began to make my amends, and I began to, to grow stronger in this program. And I was able to go to Tulsa the next morning and leave my boy up there because God put a miracle in my life that day. A man came walking my my path that I hadn't seen in years, that I knew was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he sat down and he shared with me the the things that that I needed to hear. And he prayed with me, and I was able to leave town and leave him alone. And time went by and time went by, and... And Mike wound up down here in Dallas. And down here in Dallas, from time to time, he'd sober up. And from time to time, he wouldn't be sober, and he'd get terrible. He'd just get terrible. And the phone would ring, and it would be a doctor somewhere, or it'd be somebody, somebody's little girl, and, and they'd be calling me, and they'd say, you know, he's down here, and he's in a lockup, or he's in jail, or he's in the psych ward, or he's on the streets, or he's just wherever he was. What do you think we are to do? And remember how I told you I couldn't tell Carl when Pat called that night? And Carl would look at me and say, What is it, June? And I was able to say to Carl, It's Mike. It's Mike. He's in bad shape down there in Dallas, and we need to know what to do, Carl. And you know what my husband says? My husband doesn't go to anything. He got it by osmosis. He just hung around with us. <laughs> <laughs> and he got our deal. And my husband would look at me and say, Well, maybe we ought to call Pat and Regina. And maybe you ought to call Billy. See, I got me a sponsor, and she's tougher than Naomi. Maybe you ought to call Billy. And maybe we already see what they think. So I call Billy and I call Pat and Regina. We all get together and we, we pray and we talk and we figure it out. And we do the best we can to follow the direction that our God gives to us. And I'll tell you something else. We have to stay prayed up because that boy, he keeps running in and out, in and out, in and out. And we can't wait until that shoe falls to start praying because that ain't going to cut. We've got to pray on a daily basis. For the will the knowledge of god's will for our life and the power to carry it out you see I, I believe i'm a good upstanding committed member of Al-Anon, but i'm a mama first and i love that kid like i heard tom say one night like peter love the lord i love that boy i absolutely adore him and it tears my heart out to see the waste and i want to go get him i walked buck naked back to tulsa this morning if it's him, and i want to go get him and it takes every thing I've got to leave him lay in the street. And I don't have it. And if I turn loose of you and I stay off my knees very long at a time, I don't have it. My power and my strength come from my God and from you people. And I know that. And I fight this deal as fervently as any alcoholic in this room ever fought to stay sober. Because I don't want to kill my boy. See? And sometimes I don't even want to look at him. You know, sometimes I don't even want to look and when I finally was able to turn my boy completely loose completely loose was when I could not stand the pain of suffering anymore when I could not stand to look into those empty, empty eyes and watch that staggering foot walk across the floor when I could not go any longer to that jail when I could not look any longer in a mental institution when I could not do those things I turned my boy over to my God. It took that much for me. And so this past year was a very, very painful year for me because Mike literally wound up on the streets of Tulsa. Much of the time he was locked up somewhere in an institution or in a jailhouse. But he laid on the streets up there. And I never forget one day, he called me in my office and he said, Mama, could you come for me? I'm up here on the street. And I was getting ready to go up there in Missouri, Tom where Tom and I spoke together at a conference. And I got up just like that and I went and got that boy. And we got in the car. I picked him up off the street and he was dirty. And we got in the car and there were no promises. There was none none of this. There were two people sitting there with their spirits literally dashed by the disease of alcoholism and I took him and I didn't know if it was right or wrong but I took him to an old motel out on the east side of town and I paid his rent for two nights and I laid a $20 bill in the room and I left there and the next morning I got on a plane and went to Springfield and my heart was absolutely crushed and my, my spirit was crushed and I remember looking out of that airplane and, and saying, Lord, I never wanted to travel. Never in my wildest imagination did I ever, ever think of coming to places like this and speaking to people like you. This is not something I solicited. And Lord, I wonder why you're sending me. I'm physically sick, my heart is sick, and I wonder why. And I got there that weekend, and I, I sat and I listened one more time, to especially to Tom, because i would heard him many times. But something happened to me that weekend, and I knew the answer. I knew that that was God's way of taking care of me. See, God sends me to places like this for me. Because I need to come here and listen to Marie and Peggy and Richard and Tom and, and be around all you people and watch you and watch the fun that we had this morning with the parade and Joe and everybody. I need to be around you kind of people because one more time, this hope rises up in my heart. And one more time, I'm restored. And I know that there is a miracle out there somewhere. My boy, just hang on. You know, I know it's there. I know it's there. And so that's why. That's what I knew that weekend when I left there. And I was able to go back home. And I was able to continue on this walk. You know, my God does these things for me on a daily basis. And then the time came in this past February, and it was cold evening. And I was sitting there in my home about four o'clock in the evening and that phone rang. And it was my it was Mike. And he said, Mama, could you please come? I'm up here on the street and it's cold. And I can't sleep on this street one more night. And I got up and I started out there. I got in the car and I drove out to the barn. And I said to my husband, Carl I'm going after Mike, and, my, and Carl looked at me, and he said, June, just do what you have to do. And I started down that road, and I'm going to tell you something, I started arguing with myself. When I started arguing with myself, I'm rationalizing and justifying, and I'm in my will, and I know I'm in my will. And I started arguing with myself, and I started telling myself it was all right, and the tears were streaming, and I, I went about five miles, and I pulled over. And I picked up the phone, and I called my sponsor, and she wasn't home. And I got called him my sponsor-in-law. He's been sober 27 years and God, he's just so good, and he knows my kids, and he knows me. And, and I said, Bob, I was crying, and I said, Bob, it's Mike, and I've got to go get him. And he said, June, why don't you just turn that car around and go on back home? And I said, oh, Bob, it's cold. It's cold. And he said, June, we're real innovative, but you'll find a warm spot before this night's out. You go on back home, and you leave my... You go on back home, and you leave that kid alone. And I turned the car around, and I went back home. And I cried and I sobbed all night long and Carl cried and sobbed and held me. And I prayed and I left him up there and a day or two I heard from him and his voice was one more time clear. And he said, Mama, I found my way to the mission. And he stayed there for some six months. And he's not in there now, he's out. And best I know he I don't know, I don't really know a great deal about him except I know that, I know that he called me before I come up here Friday morning. He ran me up on the little phone at the airport and he just said, "Mama, say hi to Joe and Kay and tell him tell I sent my best. And that's me, he thinks. And I know, God, I didn't mean to do this. I didn't mean to. I know that basically my problems are, my, are of my own making. I know I don't have to cry all day long anymore I know I can die laughing like I did last night and I can die laughing like I did this morning and just do things for fun and for free whether he makes it or whether he doesn't I know that most days my cup is full and I drink from the saucer because y'all gave me that I believe with all my heart that some 2,000 years ago there was a man stood up on a hilltop and he laid down a set of principles by which we could live and be of service one to another I don't think it's any accident that that set of principles strongly, strongly resembles the 12 steps. That I believe that God gave to Bill Wilson in a divine inspiration. I believe with all my heart this program is divinely inspired. And I think the miracle of it all is that Bill Wilson sobered up long enough to get it. And he wrote them down, and they passed them on to people like me. I need it so bad. I need it so bad. My little ODAT book says, He has delivered my soul in peace from the battles that were against me, and there were many with me. And I thought about that last night as Marie was talking about the battles that come against us, even in recovery. But the promise is, he has delivered my soul in peace, and that's there, and it's true, and it's for all of us. I want to tell you all right now, shortly, briefly, my two sober kids went back to school my boy pat with his 15 years sobriety is called doctor today my daughter regina with her 15 year sobriety has been to law school for a year and a half and she dropped out and she's picking up her nursing license again and she's doing some paralegal work and i'm not telling you all that so i can throw my head back but what i want to tell you about that is this not one dime not one dime of those two educations supported my children in the only way I knew I must. And that was on my knees, asking for God's perfect will for their life, and thanking Him for it. Because see, it's really important to thank God for what you're asking for. Because He's going to answer your prayers. It may not be how you want it, but He's going to. You just have to always remember thanking Him for the answer, because you're going to get it. Me and Carl were sweethearts again. We celebrated 39 years of marriage since the 7th day of August this year. Another one of our miracles, this problems,
1: We have a blessed
0: unity in our home today, and when Mike comes home from time to time, even if he's been off on a drunk, he, uh, you know, Carl, he don't cotton too much to that. Some of that stuff Mike does, but, but you know, I don't tell Carl how to act anymore. And that worried me for a while because I thought Carl still needed my instructions from time to time. <laughs> Al told me to mind my own business, but I won't tell you right now. I didn't do that right off the bat. I, it took me a while to learn to do that, and I'm, I'm still learning. But I don't tell Carl how to act anymore when when Mike comes home, and and so all through the spring, you know, my I'd go Mike would come home, I'd run up and get him from the Salvation Army when they would let him loose, and and I'd bring him down to the house, and him and his daddy, I couldn't have I couldn't have planned it any better. This probably don't mean nothing to y'all, but they trap gophers, you know, out in our yard all the time, and it was just. They just loved it and I just had the best time and, and I just sat back and I just looked at it and I learned that lesson one more time that my job is to just pray and ask God to come and speak to Carl just the same way he has spoken to me and spoken to the others in my, our lives and so that's what I try to do you know John the Indian was one of my very favorite speakers and, and he said he said that one time in his talk you know just because someone don't act like you want them, to act or think like you want them to think or talk like you want them to think it does not mean they don't love it means you don't understand so pray to understand and that's what I try to do you know I try to pray to understand and ask for God's guidance and everything I do the leather stuff has become absolutely invaluable to me I want to close with this little story and it's true I uh down there on that ranch you know Carl trained those cutting horses and. a and I don't know if you all know anything about cutting or not, but I was the turn back help, and the turn back help is the person that sits out in front of the cutter and, and you get screamed at through his wife and uh, <laughs> I got pretty sick of it myself, and so I decided that I wanted to be uh, go and to the cutting, too and show my and show a horse. So Carl bought me this mare, and she was well trained mare and and so I had of course I had the spurs and the saddle and chaps and the hat and boots and the whole nine yards. And then Carl sent me down to Tecumseh, Oklahoma, where there was an old man that lived down there, dear friend of ours named Mr. Pat Patterson. Mr. Pat was champion cutting horse man many, many times all over the United States. And he sent me down there with this gruff old man that people were scared to death of, you know. And I stayed many weeks with that old man down there. And we'd get out and I'd ride that mare and I'd sometimes fall off and they moved pretty fast. And and the old man would gently talk to me and he'd help me back and, and we'd keep on doing it and keep on doing it and keep on doing it until I got it right. And the day came, you know, it was time for me to go and show my mare and I went over to Shawnee, Oklahoma. That was my first show. And I was terrified. I was scared to death. But she throw me off and embarrassed me right out there in front of everybody and and that might hurt me, but more than anything embarrassed my pride. And so I and, sh- and so the old teacher, old Mr. Pat, he showed up. And there he was. He wrote up to me and, and he said, Now Jim, I've come to help you And he said to me and I hear he said, Now now you can do this deal really good. Now, at the cutting, there's two men set out here, and that's the turn back help. And there's a man sits on either side, and that's the, the herd holder. And they sat there to keep that herd from swarming out on you once you got your cow cut and you're riding out in there to cut your cow. And they talked to you. And Mr. Pat said, Now, June, you can do real good. You can ride this mare. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to scritch way down in there on that saddle. You take a deep seat. Get out on your pockets, and relax. Get a hold of that horn. and Give that mare her head and let her work. I don't try to help that mare. You give her her head, and you let her work. You trust that mare. You let her work. And if, you're gonna, if you'll just listen, I'm going to be right over here in this corner, and I'm going to talk you through it. And Lord, I thought about that one day. And I said to myself, you know, that's the deal. My God says, June, I have given you the best set of tools known to man, and that's these, the big book and these outline books we carry. And I've sent you to the old masters. That's all y'all. And, and you can do this deal. What you need to do, June, is relax and don't try to help me. I can do the deal myself. Let me alone. Let me do the deal. And if you'll just listen to me, I'll talk you through it. And he comes into my heart and he talks me through it every day. But he doesn't come in uninvited. See, first I have to ask him. He comes in and he talks me through it. And because he talks me through it, I no longer have to lie down in that fear. I can now lie down in faith. I no longer have to walk in pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. I can walk in humility and gratitude for where I've been and what's still ahead of me and the people I get to do it with. Thank you all, and God bless you.